2: From Connecticut Public Radio's new studio at Gateway Community College, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we sit down with one of New Haven's leaders, Police Chief Anthony Campbell. This June will mark one year since Campbell was appointed Chief of the New Haven Police Department and 20 years after he first started working as a police officer in the Elm City. What led him to law enforcement after studying at Yale to become a minister? We'll find out. We'll talk about efforts to strengthen community policing and we'll ask Chief Campbell his take on the latest debate on guns in America and we want to hear from you too. What questions do you have for the New Haven Police Chief? You can join the conversation. Our New Haven studio number is 203-776-9677. Again, 203-776-9677. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Chief Anthony Campbell to our New Haven studio. Thanks so much for coming in.
0: Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me.
2: Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you're not Connecticut native. You grew up in New York City. What was that like?
0: It was really interesting. I mean, I was born and raised in Harlem, New York, um, 125th Street and Madison Avenue. Um, Ultimately went to public school, PS 133, and then all uh, uh, Roman Catholic school, uh, All Saints school. And uh, the time I grew up in the 70s and 80s in uh, New York City was a very tumultuous time. A lot of drugs, A lot of violence, ultimately the crack epidemic. Um, But I grew up in a tight-knit family. My mother was only uh, 16 years older than me, and my dad was 17 years older. So great-grandpa and grandma really held us together and kind of raised us all. And I ultimately was brought here 27 years ago. I was fortunate enough to stay in school, get a good education, and uh, made it into Yale University. And that's how I uh, wound up coming to Connecticut.
2: I've talked to some police officers uh, who come from a family of uh, those who worked in the law enforcement. What about your family? What did your parents do? And when did you decide that law enforcement was something you were interested in?
0: Yeah, my uh, mother was a New York City corrections officer at Rikers Island. Uh, She worked there for about 20 years, got on the job when I was about 12 years old. And my father was conversely uh, involved in a lot of drug activity. He was a street-level drug dealer, um, incarcerated numerous times. But the thing about my father, um, he was only 17 years older than me, but he always told me, I better never catch you in the street. If I catch you out there, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And I knew he meant it. Uh, he was about education. He said, you're a smart kid. Uh, we're going to make sure you get your education because you've got a bright future ahead of you. He always provided for the family, um, always made sure you know, I was a good student um, and made sure I followed a path that my grandparents had me on, stay in church, stay in school, be respectful of your elders. Um, so they, it, it was a divided world. Mom on one side doing law enforcement, dad on the other side involved in some criminal activity.
2: How did that impact you when your father was incarcerated?
0: You know, it was difficult because, you know, I would write letters to him. I would talk with him on the phone. And whenever he was incarcerated, I found this unique thing. He seemed to get connected with God. Um, He would come out. He would walk that straight and narrow path for a while. But he was released back to the same environment, the same environment that had the drugs, the same environment that had limited opportunity for him as a convicted felon. And little by little, he would just be uh, really attracted back to that world he was familiar with. So when he was incarcerated, I always felt like I know he's safe. Um, I know that, you know, he has structure. I know he's in connection with God. But he came back out and really never was able to connect with a community of faith and kind of would recidivate.
2: That's interesting that you had that family background because we're in the city of New Haven. We yes. hear so often about the challenges that New Haven faces in terms of the reentry population, the people that come in and out of prison every day. They're left to just figure it out on their own. Yes. And there have been efforts in recent years to help uh, former inmates to restart their lives. But that's something that uh, people in New Haven are, are walking every day.
0: Absolutely. Uh, every day, we have quite a few members of our community who are returning to the community. Most of them get dropped off in the Whaley Avenue area. Uh, we've started a reentry entry program. Uh, it's being run by Earl Bloodsworth, who we're working with closely in the department. We try to welcome people back and help them to understand that we know you're returning to the community and we want to support you. We've done things right here at Gateway, where we've had uh, re-entry welcoming and also uh, those who are willing to hire those who have been incarcerated. You know, it's one thing to have people come back to your community, but you have to provide them with opportunities. They have to have an opportunity to work. Uh, You have to give them opportunities to be educated. And they have to know that they're coming back to a community that recognizes that they've paid their debt and that we want to welcome them back and help them get reintegrated as part of this community. And that we really can't be the best possible community that we can be if we don't help them to become part of us again. So, yeah.
2: This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell uh, from Connecticut Public Radio's new studio here at Gateway Community College. Uh, we want to hear from you too this hour if you have questions for Chief Campbell if you live in the city of New Haven, the number 203-776-9607 9677 rather. I'm learning that number. Uh, 203-776-9677. Now if you don't live in New Haven but you have questions about law enforcement, uh, we want to hear from you too. That number 203 776-9677. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So you went from New York City to Yale University as yes. an undergrad. Yes. Undergrad. What so was that like?
0: That was really incredible. Now y- you've got to see uh, you know I'm this skinny black kid from Harlem who is now plopped into Yale University and I'm meeting people from all over the world. Uh people who are well outside of my socioeconomic status uh so many different cultures and it was just a really great experience and yet it was shocking at the same time because I missed my family. I missed the pace of New York City. I, I missed Harlem. I mean, I was, had been surrounded by a primarily uh, African-American population and now I was with so many different people. But the thing that I found was that all of the lessons that uh, my great-grandparents and my parents and uh, the great teachers that I had in Harlem That's really where I I stood on, and it helped me to stand out amongst my peers. Uh, Yale was an incredible experience because I came there with the goal of becoming a Jesuit priest. I'd been so affected by the uh, Jesuits at Fordham Preparatory School where I went in the Bronx that I decided this was the path I wanted to go. But um, I was a member of a a Baptist student union group, and uh, my sophomore year, uh, God sent me— Uh, an angel from uh, Miami, Florida, uh, in the form of a woman named Stephanie Clark, who became my best friend. And we started dating my senior year. And I realized that, well, Jesuit priest is off the table, (laughs) because I'm in love with this woman. And uh, she's been my wife for the last 18 years, and has uh, blessed me with uh, three beautiful children, uh, Graham, uh, Sanderson, and Paxson. So To me, I say, not only did I come to Yale and get a great education, but I came and uh, found my wife and my life partner, so it was a great experience.
2: So from uh, wanting to be a priest to becoming a police officer, I don't often think of that (laughs) as a track uh, for a career. Yeah. Again, what sparked your interest?
0: What really sparked my interest was I wanted to be a priest because I loved how those priests were really serving the community how it didn't matter who you were, what your life experience was, that they loved all people and they were really professing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, to me, that was the most important thing in my life. It provided the greatest amount of structure, um, the grace and, and the thought of that God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. And I wanted to be, have a life of service. And so once I realized I wasn't going to be a priest, I said, well, what other ways can I serve the community? One day I was outside and on one of the city buses, there was a a poster. And on it was a African-American female police officer, New Haven police officer in uniform. And there was a caption next to her that said, police others as you would have others police you. Now that resonated deeply with my heart and my spirit because it was basically uh, the golden rule. I said, well, what is this about? And I started looking into it and found that New Haven had this unique, way of policing called community policing, really uh, brought here by uh, former Mayor Daniels, um, which had been brought to Mayor Daniels by then older person, uh, Tony Harp, who is now our mayor, and had been implemented by uh, Chief uh, Nicholas Pastor. And it was really about changing from the traditional model of if you dial 911, we respond, we determine if there's probable cause to make an arrest. If so, we do so, and then we're on our way to really looking at what are the needs of the community, what are the ways in which we can serve them. Uh, to me, community policing is is really more about ministry, and so to me, it went hand in hand with what I'd seen myself doing, serving people. You know, people say, "Well, what do you do? You're a police officer." I said, "No, I'm a cop. You know, I'm a Christian on patrol." I get to live out my faith uh, and my ministry by serving people in this capacity.
2: It's interesting that uh, you you were um, led to this uh, this career um after uh, finding someone that you loved and realizing that the priesthood wasn't an option for y- yes. you and um, you know, believing in these Christian tenants in your job as a police officer. Yes. Uh, now more than ever, being a police officer at times, uh, it's a hard job. yes. Especially when you look at recent events Mm. around the country. most certainly. You're an African-American man. Mm -hmm. When we look at the attention uh, placed, um, rightfully so, on on the deaths of unarmed black men Mm -hmm. by police, there is a level of distrust in communities Mm -hmm. with law enforcement. How do you react when these situations happen, and how do you work with your police force to regain that trust? Even if it's not a police officer in the New Haven Police Department, people are seeing these stories, Uh and they worry about their loved ones.
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm the police chief, but first and foremost, I'm an African-American man. Um, I'm an African-American man who's raising three young African-American men. If you see my son, he is 16 years old. I'm six one. He's approaching six two, and he outweighs me. He's a he's a big kid. And so, when these events happen, where you have you know unarmed African American men uh, shot by police, our world is so much smaller than it used to be because of social media. So something may happen five, six, seven hundred miles away, but it affects us here. People feel that pain, and so I have to deal with both my officers who are concerned about. Their safety and the safety of the community but also have to take uh, into account the safety of the members of our community particularly our minority community and the african-american men in our community and we've worked very closely with groups like black lives matter Uh, we help them to have safe spaces to protest to talk about these things and we use these situations as an opportunity to talk with the community to talk with them about how can we better police you? How can we create a safe space where there's greater accountability and transparency? And one of the things that really came to heart as a result of that was people were saying, we wanna know and wanna be able to see how officers do their job. We wanna be able to know exactly what happened when it happened. And so working closely with Mayor Harp, We decided to implement body cameras in our our city. I'm, I'm wearing one right now. And we implemented them about four months ago after doing a pilot program. And it's been one of the greatest ways in which we've created this transparency and accountability so that people know, God forbid, if an officer has to use deadly force against anyone in the community. But especially if it's going to be a a minority member of the community, which can create great tension, we at least will have video to show what the officer did, when they did it, why they did it, and hold the officer as well as the community accountable. That transparency has created a great bond uh, with our community.
2: And how has that been going? My understanding is that it's the police officer that can turn the camera on and off. Correct. So how do you ensure that one of your officers won't turn off the camera at a time when, to be transparent, to see the interaction that's happening that's important that might come up later?
0: Yes. So one of the things we have some safeguards because that was one of our biggest concerns. Uh, So the camera by our general orders, which are basically like our governing rules for the department, the cameras have to be on When there's any call that you're being dispatched to that may involve violence, uh, that may involve uh, felony, anything that may be a pursuit, Uh, one of the great safeguards is that the cameras are automatically activated when an officer, say, draws their taser. So the officer won't have to focus on, let me turn the camera on. Uh, It becomes a safety issue for the officer. So the moment they draw their taser, it activates. Uh, When they turn their lights on in their patrol car, it activates um, so that when these situations that usually escalate from a pursuit, and then an officer getting into a shooting, the camera is already going to be activated. Another safeguard is the reality that we gave them to all the officers, um, you know, from myself down so that usually when a situation occurs, you're not going to have one officer on scene. You're going to have multiple. So not only will we have the perspective of the officer who may has to tase someone or, God forbid, Shoot someone, but we'll have the perspective from multiple points of view.
2: This is where we live. Again, you can ask a question of New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell. The number two zero three seven seven six nine six seven seven. I wanted to take a, a call now. Eric is calling from Simsbury. Eric, you're on the show.
1: Hi. How are you? Um, so I uh, was uh, you know, I was listening, and one of the obviously we live in a um, a really Uh, sort of employment-centric society where that sort of employment is kind of central to to opportunity and that kind of thing. And I just was wondering, you know, I know people have concerns or employers have concerns about um, employing individuals who've been previously incarcerated for fear that they'll either sort of return to the activity they were doing before or just generally get in trouble. And I was wondering what can be done to kind of alleviate that that concern um, to sort of provide more opportunity.
2: Eric, thank you for your question, Chief Campbell.
0: You know, uh, great question, Eric. I think that one of the things that can be done is some of the reentry programs that we've started instituting here, uh, where you bring employers or prospective employers, and you bring people who have been incarcerated. Um, many times, some employers who have already employed people who have been incarcerated, they have systems in place to help them to make sure that there's accountability, to make sure that they won't stray and go off the path. And it's incredible that many people who have been incarcerated, they come out with, in many times, new skill sets and a drive to really want to prove themselves, to be part of the community again. And so I think when you have these types of programs and interactions, reentry programs, and bringing second-chance opportunity employers together, um, then you really create an environment where there's more conversation and you could learn from one another different programs that could be put in place to ensure the success of people coming back, both for the employers and the employees.
2: Uh, before Eric's call, uh, Chief Campbell, we were talking about uh, accountability measures, including these body cameras mm-hmm. that your force are now using. Um, there's also been efforts, I understand, to... Um, begin an all-civilian review board? Yes. With subpoena powers that would investigate police misconduct? Yes. Where does that stand?
0: So the Board of Alders uh, came together and was tasked with that. Uh, last year, they uh, were able to successfully get it voted through. Now, one of the challenges is determining who would be hired, uh, would be a civilian, to oversee it, uh, what will be the finances, um, and working also on the subpoena powers. That's been a Big issue. So they're in the final stages of that. Um, I spoke uh, with a few of the alders and there, Jeanette Morrison uh, was one of the primary alders who headed that up and they're in the very final stages. As I told the uh, board of alders at a public hearing, as long as I'm chief of police, they will have my 100% support. We want and I genuinely believe as a police chief that there should be more accountability for police. Um, far too often, our job is based on public trust. Um, Sir Robert Peel, you know, the modern-day father of uh, community policing said that the police are the public and the public are the police. We're simply people who are charged with the full-time duty of ensuring the safety of of all of our society. And so that can only be really fully enacted when people trust us. Um, So the more safeguards there are in place. Uh, An officer should feel comfortable to come before Internal Affairs, a Civilian Review Board, uh, the Board of Police Commissioners, a Board of Alders, and anyone else to talk about how they do their job and why they did what they did in their job. So uh, we're looking forward to getting that Civilian Review Board up and running, and uh, the vast majority of officers welcome it with open arms, I definitely do.
2: What about the police union?
0: Police union uh, was there that night talking about um, how they feel about it. They were not directly opposed to it, but they did have concerns with respect to particularly the subpoena power. The board of police commissioners already has subpoena powers, and their concern was, aren't we simply duplicating something that already exists? Um, But they definitely are about making sure that their officers are protected, their work rights are protected. Um, But they they've been right on board with the transparency and accountability.
2: Uh, Lou's calling where we live. Lou from New Haven. Go ahead, Lou.
1: Uh, Hi. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm a New Haven resident. Uh, I also grew up in uh, a a police family. Uh, My brother's a 20 year veteran of the police department in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really appreciate everything that uh, you're saying and everything that, you know, the department has been doing with respect to community policing. Um, I see it every day, uh, and I think that more communities need to be doing this kind of thing. Uh, I did want to just point out that, you know, I, I think no department, um, you know, is without incident. Um, and as a, you know, as a social justice activist um, in the community, uh, you know, uh, accountability and transparency are very important. Me and so I actually just wanted to take an opportunity to voice my support and to urge you respectfully to support the efforts to establish an all civilian community review board in uh, New Haven, which is something that's happened in a number of other states and communities around the country. Uh, And it's very important that that you know uh, review board be independent, uh, all civilian, and have investigatory powers. Um, which the community doesn't currently have when it comes to different kinds of, uh, uh, you know, police incidents and interactions with the community. So that's my comment, and I, I appreciate you, uh, the time, and I'll take my answer off the you.
2: Thank you, Lou, for your question. And we were just talking about that, mm-hmm. that Civilian Review Board. Yes,
0: and and one point that he made, which I think is really important, is independence. You know, one of the biggest issues that people have when an in internal affairs Uh, investigation is launched is that internal affairs is a division of the police department it's the police investigating the police and I understand that and I believe that the independence uh, which Lou was talking about is very important if you look at other countries you look at Canada when there's an officer-involved shooting or so forth, it is a completely independent agency, not made up of law enforcement officials, that does the investigation. Uh, one of the things that we've had great success is our new state's attorney, Pat Griffin, uh, came in and we've established a relationship with him that in any major incident, uh, especially officer-involved shooting, whether it is leads to death or not, or pursuits, um, that. We turn the investigation over to the state's attorney so that people can understand that it's an outside entity that will be doing the investigation, uh, not us investigating our own officers. So I think that independence that Lou pointed out is very important, and I think that more departments need to develop civilian review boards and other accountability measures.
2: We're getting a tweet from a listener, David, who writes, while Chief Campbell talks about building trust with communities, the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association opposes police accountability legislation. What are some bills that are possible this session that will address these issues of police accountability? You just mentioned there should be more support in other ways beyond a civilian review board.
0: Well, I think one of the big things is, you know, body cameras for all departments. I think that uh, I've heard from one of my former officers who retired, Shafiq Abdusabar, who talked a lot about policies that are standardized across the board. Um, you know, some of the things I think also are bad boy clauses, which we have in our contract, which holds an officer accountable. If an officer should violate someone's constitutional rights or should, God forbid, take someone's life wrongfully and is convicted of that, there are things that say, well, they should forfeit their pension. Um, that the investigation should be done in a certain timely fashion uh, by an outside independent agency. So I think these are some of the legislative points that uh, members like uh, uh, Robin Porter has been pushing for. I've been working closely with her. And I don't know if it's a direct opposition that the many of the chiefs have, but I do think that they want to be involved in the process more, and I think that there needs to be far more communication than there has been.
2: The police, uh, the body cameras are paved through through the state of Connecticut.
0: Yes, we state grant we got. It.
2: So there are a f- we know there are a few in the southern part of the state that have the body cameras. Yes. Uh, what is the what are the fears or the opposition to this and other departments that you've heard?
0: Well, some of the things that I've heard are you know, well, it's going to you know make it difficult for uh, officers to really communicate with the community. People won't feel free to just speak to officers about what's really going on if they know they're being recorded. Um I've heard that, you know, many unions oppose it. It's going to be an impact on how officers do their job. It's one more piece of equipment that they have to do. And I understand those concerns. But what we found is that uh, in the beginning, uh, when we did surveys in our department, There were a certain percentage of officers who were opposed to it. Um, They thought that it would hinder their job. But now most officers will say, I'm not going out unless I have my body camera, because they've seen that it's been shown. It's just a natural thing that human beings act differently when they know they're being recorded, both police officers as well as members of the public. Uh, when an officer pulls a car over and says, you know, license registration, I'm um, Officer Campbell, no even Police Department, just to let you know that I'm wearing a body camera and this interaction is being recorded, it makes everyone act differently. Uh, knowing that they're being recorded and that their actions can be reviewed, um, it helps reduce the number of complaints. And it also reduces the likelihood that an officer will get into a physical confrontation. Um, people, I really think that, The concerns that many departments and many people have can be addressed if they really look into the benefits that you get from greater accountability.
2: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Today, we're broadcasting from Connecticut Public Radio's new studio at Gateway Community College in New Haven. My guest today, Chief Anthony Campbell of the New Haven Police Department. After the break, we'll continue our discussion and we'll talk about the latest debate on guns in America. We'll also take your calls. The number in New Haven, 203-776-9677. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nall Today we're broadcasting from our New Haven studio at Gateway Community College. My guest is New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell. You can join our conversation today, our New Haven studio number 203-776-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we talk about guns, uh, we were talking about the use of body cameras, um, and we know that that the officers in the New Haven Police Department have body cameras now. Uh, Carolyn from Hartford has a quick question about that. Carolyn, go ahead with your question. Okay, thank you. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question is about the body cams and
1: um, privacy issues. Mm -hmm. I'm
2: wondering if
1: uh, there are options for individuals, say in a domestic
2: violence situation, Mm -hmm. or even a child protection situation, Mm -hmm. um, to choose for the body cams not to be on. And if you have any concerns about people being hesitant to call the police if, if they think what's going on is gonna get recorded. Good question, Carolyn. Chief Campbell.
0: Carolyn, that's a fantastic question. It's one that we address uh, before we deployed the cameras. It's one that is also addressed in our general orders. So each officer that gets a body camera is trained for eight hours on that body camera. We go over the general order for probably a good two hours because in that general order, it tells when you can and cannot use the body camera. So there are privacy protections built in place exactly for situations like you mentioned. Domestic situations where a victim may not want to be on camera, uh, issues that deal with sexual assault, uh, sexual assault victims, as well as children protecting their privacy, as well as situations in uh, HIPAA. You know, if an officer has to go into an emergency room, uh, deal with someone who is there who has been assaulted, shot, seriously injured in a motor vehicle accident, the cameras are not allowed to be activated. So, And even in everyday situations where a citizen may approach an officer and maybe wants to give us some information or talk about something and does not want the camera on, they can ask that the officer turn it off. There are situations where they, it has to be on or the vehicle stops. Any violent felony situations, it has to be on. But, yes, we did address those uh, privacy issues because we know that's very important for our people.
2: And you can join the conversation here on Where We Live, 203-776-9677. Uh, Chief Gam- Campbell, yet again, we are in the midst of... Uh, A national conversation about guns, uh, most recently the shootings in Parkland, Florida. Uh, What role should the police have in these conversations?
0: I think the police should have a huge role because uh, when the shooting starts and definitely when it's going on, we are called to respond to protect the lives of all of our citizens and, sad to say, our students. Um, I think that we need to As police chiefs and as police officers, we have a very strong voice. A lot of what we see, the carnage of gun violence, yes, is happening on the larger scale in our schools. I mean, the one in Parkland was, sad to say, the 18th mass shooting of the year, and uh, we were only six weeks into the year. So I think we have a huge voice in talking about common sense gun legislation and making sure that we work with our legislators um, as well as manufacturers, to make sure that we get some good common-sense gun legislation on the books and that makes sure that every parent, every citizen, every student uh, comes forward and has their voice heard. Because I think if we all pull together and people know that we in law enforcement really want to see this gun violence stop, it really this is absolutely senseless and has to stop, we can bring about this change now
2: and you know more than anyone else that uh, there's not a unified voice among law enforcement in this country Correct. to talk about gun violence what will that take what are the what are some of the issues in play uh, that you won't find uh, police all in agreement when it comes to, you mentioned, common sense gun legislation?
0: I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the Second Amendment, the constitutional rights issue. Uh, There's a lot of fear that people have that, well, if you start limiting uh, what people can get or who can own a gun, uh, that opens the door. And I understand that concern, but, you know, we've been watching these school shootings beginning with Columbine escalate, Uh, We watched this most recent one where this was totally avoidable. And I think that uh, the disputes that we have about what common sense gun legislation really means uh, can be solved if we all just sit down uh, from a law enforcement standpoint, from a civilian standpoint, a legislative standpoint, and look at what's happening. Yes, the big thing that happened in Parkland, 17 lives lost, a community that has been changed forever. But- These shootings, these mass shootings and lives being lost across this country due to gun violence is simply happening in slow motion in communities across this country. This community had 34 lives lost in 2011 to gun violence. Um, Many communities, you look at Chicago, you look at Baltimore, you look at communities across this country, Watts, Lives are being lost, and we need to stop guns getting into the hands of people who should not have them. And the only way to do that is really by waking up. And I think that these mass shootings, especially where our kids are being shot, is really waking us up. You know, this morning when I was dropping my son off at school, we were talking a little bit about it. I told him I was going to be on the show, and he showed me a meme. And the meme basically said, be a good American, go to school, get shot, Go to church, get shot, go to the mall, get shot, and then go to the hospital and can't afford health care and die. We, we we have to change this. This is absolutely ridiculous. An AR-15, which the NRA will say, well, uh, Americans should get this because hunters use it. It's a hunting tool. They're absolutely right. It is a hunting tool, but it's being used to hunt human beings. It's mm-hmm. being used to hunt our children in school. We had to change our policy on how our officers respond to schools um, because now, you know, with fire alarms, we have to have officers respond to every fire alarm because we know that now they're using the fire alarms to get people out so they can mow them down.
2: This was in direct, Direct right after Parkland.
0: Direct response to Parkland. Uh, We were fortunate that we had a week off from school last week so that we could get these things in order. But when you think about the reality that now we have to think about, it used to be, you know, you want to keep your kids safe, tell your kids don't do drugs. Now you have to think, well, we're safe. You know, I'm sending my kids to school. Is the school safe? Is the church safe? Is the mall safe? Um, we need to stop this. And when you look at us as Americans, we were very violent, and it's because a, a lot of it is that it's very easy to get a gun. Um, there's a lot I don't agree with our president on. But one thing he did say recently is upping the age of who can get a gun. Um, and also, he said, the states who really have not looked into or have reduced the amount of mental health care, especially for youth, need to get back to the table and look at what's going on. Because it's, it is a gun issue, but it is also a health care issue. I and mean, I really believe that it's a national Healthcare crisis, this gun issue.
2: Uh, we were talking earlier about um, police. Obviously, don't speak in a unified voice yes. uh, on issues across the country. Uh, the Detroit's police chief came out publicly in favor of arming teachers. <laughs> What's your take?
0: I I think that is not a good idea. Someone becomes a teacher because they want to educate uh, students. They want to prepare the future generation for a bigger, brighter future. And taking the focus off of that, arming our teachers, um, I just don't think is a good idea. You had an incident in Georgia yesterday where a teacher had a weapon in the school and the school resource officer had to disarm that, that teacher. Um, I think it adds additional layers of pressure to teachers. This is not their responsibility. This is the responsibility of law enforcement. It is the responsibility of us as citizens, as parents, to make sure that it is common sense laws are on the books to make sure that a person who should not have access to a gun does not get access to that weapon, to make sure that a person who does have a weapon is of a certain age, a certain responsibility. Um, And I don't think that arming teachers is the answer. Um, Who's to say that that teacher won't be disarmed by a student. And then now you've already got the weapon in the school. Um, I just don't think that's the answer.
2: So often in this country, when we talk about guns, it's when a mass shooting happens. Yes. But we know gun violence happens every day, mm-hmm. including through by suicide. Yes. Violence in neighborhoods. Yes domestic violence. That was one of the issues that you wanted to address when you were appointed chief. Uh, Walk us through domestic violence, the laws here in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and how to help victims.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things that I am addressing uh, with Mayor Harp, Mayor Harp is a huge proponent of more uh, advocacy for domestic violence. Last year we had seven homicides in the city of New Haven, which is a record low for the last 50 years. Very proud of that. But two of those homicides were domestic related. And the sad thing is that in domestics, uh, we're trying to create a, um, a family justice center. Uh, it's one stop shopping for uh, domestic violence issues. Right now, the way this system is set up, if you have a domestic, you're a victim of a domestic, we respond. Our officers are trained in the LAP program, which is a lethality assessment program to help determine uh, exit strategy for you, a safety program. If necessary, we make the arrest, protective orders are put in place, and then it goes over to the court. Now, you may need to work with a victim advocate. You may need help with uh, education issues for your kids, relocation, uh, travel, protective orders, and other things. And if you looked at the amount of time it would take for a person, especially if they don't have access to a vehicle to travel around, take anywhere from eight to 20 hours to do all of these things and a lot of times people just stop as they're going through the process because they're like it's just too much work but if you have all of those services in one location where people could come an officer is there the prosecutor is there a victim advocate is there um all in one place where they can help surround a victim with the services that they need. And not just the victim, but also offenders who may need some help. Um, I think this is important because a lot of the gun violence and a lot of the violence that we see really does go back to domestic violence. And uh, we need to address this issue. It's, It's really the new frontier.
2: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to have to take a break. But again, in studio with me is New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell. Coming up, we're going to talk more about his vision for the New Haven Police Department and the unique challenges cities like New Haven have, including, as we talked earlier, about uh, those released from prison who want to restart their lives. You can join the conversation. Sorry, 203 from our New Haven line, 203-776-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. We've been talking today to New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell. You can join our conversation to 203-776-9677 and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Earlier we were talking about gun violence. Uh, Walk us through what has been working in the city of New Haven, Chief Campbell, when it comes to reducing gun violence. I understand that it's a historic low. Yes.
0: What's really been working is collaboration. That collaboration has taken the form primarily in the form of Project Longevity. Project Longevity uh, is a name that we have adopted for a program that began uh, out of Chicago called uh, Ceasefire. Uh, Working with John Jay University, we tailored the program to us, and what it does is it addresses its targeted enforcement. We have found that statistically, through hard data, we can identify those people are most likely to be shot and to be shooters. And so what Project Longevity does is it works with law enforcement locally, law enforcement on a federal level, FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshals, but also clergy and community members, job providers, social services. We do what's called custom notifications. We take those people that we identify as being most likely to be shooters or shot We bring them literally right here to Gateway, and we meet with them with myself, the FBI, a state's attorney, U.S. attorney, uh, social services providers, and we talk to them. We tell them that we recognize that they are members of influence in their community, that we want them to take this information back to their community, that we know who they are, and that we care about them, That that this community cannot thrive by having them lost to us, whether by incarceration, because they're a shooter, or through death, because they've been shot and killed. And that we are all here to support them, that we will find them jobs, educate them, and make sure that they are productive members of our society. Since this program was instituted in 2012, it has significantly helped reduce gun violence so that we had our historic low last year, but also collaborations in working with local partners, like every day, uh, the New Haven Police Department has a daily intel meeting where we bring local, federal, law enforcement uh, departments together, and we've all put aside our egos. Information used to be something that you kept very close to your your chest, to the vest, as we call it, and uh, you didn't wanna share information because information was power. Now what we realize is that the more we share this information, The more we humble ourselves and work together, you know, criminals do not respect geographic boundaries. We're all dealing with, in many instances, the same individuals. And by sharing this information, we've been able to stop a lot of the gun violence, stop a lot of the serious crimes, and really reduce the gun violence that we're seeing in this city and regionally.
2: Uh, New Haven's been described as a sanctuary city. Yes. Uh, How has uh, that um, label hurt the city grants from the federal government mm. can you walk us through because we know that that has been something that president trump has even called out mayor harp and the city of new haven for being um uh, the attorney general sessions threatened to withhold the federal edward Byrne memorial justice assistant grants and we understand that um that that money hasn't been coming through to, to law enforcement how concerned are you about not having those resources Anything that you have not received um, since President Trump has come into office?
0: There are some grants that we have not received, uh, and it's not just us. There's a lot of cities, whether they're identified as sanctuary cities or not, that have not had those funds released. And a lot of it does concern me because all of those funds are used to support the community. And we are uh, what you would call a a safety city or sanctuary city. We respect the rights of all of our citizens, uh, whether they are documented or not. Uh, Part of our general orders uh, assure that, you know, officers are not asking a person's immigration status um, because we we want to have that trust with the community. We don't want people to be afraid to call us. And, yes, we will miss those federal funds if the government does not. Release them. But the reality is that we will not be held hostage uh, by, you know, whether it's a new administration's form of tyranny, uh, by saying that, well, now you will do this or else. The greatness of us as a city, whether you want to label us as a sanctuary city or a safety city, is that we pull together and we work together to support one another. We have welcomed more people from Puerto Rico. We've welcomed many after the hurricanes to support them, we welcome anyone and everyone who is willing to work and to embrace the American dream, which is really about people from all over the place working together. I think Martin Luther King said it best. We may have all come on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now, Mm -hmm. and we have to work together to make sure that America is exactly what it was meant to be, a place for all for, you know, life, liberty and prosperity. And that's what we're trying to do right here in New Haven. I think it's working.
2: We just have a few minutes left. I I wanted to go back to um, this idea of community policing, but also uh, recruiting and to have police officers that reflect who is in the community. Yes. How are you doing that?
0: So, one of the big things that we've been doing is direct outreach. We really believe it's very important to have the police department reflect the community at polices, to have people from New Haven uh, police the streets of New Haven. So we've directly just been going, hitting the community head on, working very closely with the clergy, working very closely with our local colleges and universities. Um, And so far, it's been very successful. We are in a process now of screening. Uh, We have about 40 candidates who will be, at the end of the month, going to do polygraphs and then psychologicals. We also did a lot of work working with uh, psychologists as well as a task force to look at our policies to see if there were ways in which we can make changes that will make our department more attractive to community members. And we had direct conversations with community members to find out what is really stopping them from wanting to join our department. And
2: what is why? What do, Why wouldn't they want to do A lot it? of
0: times people say they do not want to police where they grew up. They don't want to have to arrest a possible family member or a friend that they went to school with. They don't want to shop in the grocery store where they may have to encounter someone that they arrested. You know, right now, only about 20% of the my department lives in the city of New Haven. And so we really want to try and change that and make it so that This is a city which is being policed by people who are from this city, who live in this city, and also help to keep those tax dollars right here in this city. So I think that's very important. Um, My goal is to really try and get more residents, more minorities, and definitely more women on the department. I have found in my experience that female police officers uh, really do a super effective job, especially not having to use force to get the job done.
2: I wanted to go back to uh, the reentry uh, question because uh, we've we've interviewed people who have uh, left prison and they talk about the real challenges of uh-huh. starting over. Uh-huh. We hear so often about state resources being pinched, resources locally being pinched yes. uh, when these people are released from prison they 've done their time they 're ready to restart their lives. Are there challenges to help them because of these resources uh, being less than before?
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you look at it, someone gets out of prison, uh, you know, they're going to go, probably live with a family member, but they need a job. And they need a job that is going to help them to really pay the rent, the light bill, transportation um, and we've seen a lot of those programs dwindling over time. So there's a direct effect on how it affects reentry. Um, we try to bring a lot of programs to the table. A lot of them are nonprofit programs to supplement what the state may have been providing before. And so far, so good. But there's a lot more work that needs to be done because, um of the people who are arrested will eventually return to the community, and we have to have systems in place to ensure that when they return, they're returning to a community that has opportunity there for them. Because if that opportunity is not there, then the likelihood is that they're going to return to the world that got them in prison to begin with, and that's not what we want. We want to break the cycle of recidivism.
2: We've got under a minute. I want to ask you what you think your biggest challenge is today, Chief Campbell.
0: I think my biggest challenge, you know, is helping address the fear. Um, You know, I did a a speaking engagement with some youth at a AFIA event on Saturday with youth, and I asked them, what's their biggest concern? And they said, "Um, safety, school safety, making sure that you know the world in which they live you know which has terrorism all these things going on so addressing that fear and being a beacon of hope uh for people and helping them realize that you know, as law enforcement, together with the community, we can all be beacons of hope.
2: I want to thank New Haven Police Chief Anthony Campbell. Thank you so much for joining us this hour.
0: Thank you for having me. Uh,
2: we were broadcasting for the first time from our New Haven studio here at the Gateway Community College. I want to thank producer Carmen Baskoff, technical producer Kayon Wolf, executive producer Katie Tolarsky, Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel.